If you've got your Bibles there, turn to Exodus chapter 25. So today's pretty interesting. We're going to look at the mercy seat. It's a fantastic piece of scripture. Before we start, I just want to remind you of how we're studying the Old Testament. The Old Testament is most importantly, not only, but most importantly, a revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't find the word Jesus or the name Jesus as such in the Old Testament, but everything from Genesis to Malachi represents him. It bears witness to him. And without an understanding of Jesus, we can't properly understand the Old Testament. It just doesn't make sense. And Jesus said to a group of Jews, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So he accused them in all their diligent study of the Scriptures of failing to understand that their end product or their purpose is a revelation of Jesus himself. To have missed that is to have missed it all. So they missed the whole point of the Scriptures, the Old Testament. So we must read the Old Testament through Jesus' glasses. Be thinking in the back of your mind, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does this show me about him, about who he is, his role, his ministry, even into eternity? So if we don't, then... The Old Testament becomes just a record of Jewish history and it's pretty dull and boring. It's just a history book. But if you look for Jesus in there, you will find him and it'll be exciting and it'll be beautiful. So you remember after Jesus was crucified, the two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus, about seven miles or so, and Jesus just appeared to them. Now they were really down in the dumps. They were moping around because all their hopes had been shattered. and. Jesus says, what's wrong? And they said, we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And you find that in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, 32. But that hope now is past tense. They've lost hope. Then Jesus, risen from the dead, joined them on their walk, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, so Jesus listened patiently to their grief, and then he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what a wonderful Bible study that must have been. If they had uploaded it to YouTube, would have you wanted to watch that? <laughs> so, <laughs> right to Emmaus in Jesus' conversation. So this is Jesus exposing or revealing Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And no wonder they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he opened the scriptures to us? Now they had a Bible that made sense. For the first time, Moses and all the prophets were alive with meaning and significance. They had found the key which unlocks the treasures of the book and made it all make sense, and that is Jesus. So it's my desire that as we go through the Old Testament, it's not just about learning history, what happened, but we can draw closer to Jesus. We can learn more about Jesus as we go through. And that the Holy Spirit will... Reveal the truth to your heart. So I'm just going to start in verse 17 of 24 just to get the context before we do our pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that this is an exciting book and I pray that our hearts will be burning as we study this. I pray that your Holy Spirit will help me to reveal and to say the things that are true and the things that are important and the things which aren't true and not important that I'll forget and won't say. And I just pray that you'll, especially as you go through the mercy seat, that you'll um, open our hearts 
to your love and your graciousness and your kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So that's where we stopped last time. Moses going up into the mountain, leaving Aaron and her down below to make sure everything's okay. And now we're going to see what God tells him. Now he's up the mountain, Mount Horeb. So you're familiar with the pyramids of Egypt, the pagodas of Japan, the cathedrals of Europe. But the greatest and most awesome place of worship ever constructed is largely unknown. It's a tabernacle. So it's painstakingly and powerfully described in the following 16 chapters. So, verse 1, Exodus chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering. So, this is God giving the people an opportunity to have a part in the construction of the tabernacle. Verse 2, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So, if we jump ahead to Exodus 36, it tells us that when this offering was actually collected, so God gives them a list of things that he would like them to give. When this offering was actually collected, they gave so generously that Moses had to say, stop giving, we've got too much. We don't need any more. So, how many pastors or preachers have said, please stop giving, we can't take any more? These are people who are giving from their heart. So I just want to take a a little moment to talk about this concept because it comes up a number of times in Exodus, so we'll deal with it all now. The tabernacle was outwardly simple. It was covered in skins. It's fairly cheap. You know, you kill an animal, skin it, and you've got the skin. They're pretty plentiful. But the inner part, gold and silver and, and lots of, precious things, and some of those dyes are are very expensive and hard to come by. We'll look at that in time to come. But millions of dollars, we're talking probably tens of millions of dollars, to build this tabernacle. So it was an expensive exercise, and the people gave very, very generously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, They share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity or righteousness in you. So that's Paul in 2 Corinthians 
helping us to understand that principle. Now, just remember that our greatest blessings are spiritual, not physical. So don't believe the people who say, if you give me money, you'll get money back. It might happen, it might not. It depends on how God wants to bless you. The spiritual blessings are better. I would much rather have more joy and love in my heart than more money in my bank account. So we can either store up treasures down here on earth where moth and rust will destroy them, or we can send them on ahead of us. So Jesus said something about giving as well. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, we're going to read through to verse 34. That phrase in Exodus, and giving from the heart, is really important, and it's a principle one us to try and understand. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 34 says, Do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So just commenting on that section, Giving is not God's way of raising cash, it's God's way of raising kids. Okay, I'll say that again. Giving is not God's way of raising cash, it's God's way of raising kids. Every time I give, I'm giving away part of my stinginess and my selfishness. It's for me. Giving's for me. God doesn't need my money, but I need to give. The Lord wants my heart, not my money. So people talk about money and they're always wanting more and more money, but that's not the purpose in it. It's not so someone can get rich. God wants your heart, not your money. Okay, But you give him your heart by giving him your money or possessions, whatever it takes. So he knows that wherever my treasure is, that is where my heart will be. If I have financial investments, I'll follow the stock market carefully. If I hold real estate, I'll follow the housing market with genuine interest. If I have treasure in heaven, well then guess where my heart will be. Now, Jesus didn't say, Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Instead, he said, put your treasure in heaven and your heart will inevitably follow. Okay, So if you want your heart to be centered on heaven, your heart to be heaven-focused, then send it on ahead. So God knew this and therefore gave his people in Exodus the opportunity to give so that the hearts would be drawn to worship him. And he's giving us the same opportunity today. That's why we give in church. And going on in verse 22 of Matthew 6, it says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, there's a verse in Proverbs. It says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So what does it mean in Matthew where it says, the lamp of the body is the eye? If your eye is good, you'd be full of light. If your eye is bad, you'd be full of darkness. Well, in the context, this passage is talking about money and material things. Through the eye comes illumination. If you have an evil eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. So basically the The bad eye is the person who lives for riches. It's not wrong to have things, but if you live for things, your eye is evil and your life will be dark. Now Paul expands on this. 
First Timothy six seventeen to nineteen. It says, "Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future." so they may experience true life. Powerful verse. That's where I get their phrase, sending on ahead. Because by giving your money and time and whatever it is, not just money, okay, using your talents for the kingdom, you're treasuring up a good foundation for the future and eternal future. So Paul doesn't say, sell your goods. He's just saying, don't trust them. Then going on back in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So, mammon is more than just money. Jesus identifies mammon as a master. Mammon or riches are things that can be bought. Houses, cars, entertainment, holidays, etc. All those things. And it's a tool that Satan can use to keep us in bondage. We need to be careful. It's part of the old nature, a sinful nature, to be selfish, to hoard things for ourselves, to want more and more for ourselves. Satan wants us to be focused on him, in bondage to him, and all wrapped up in him. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our Western culture is overtly materialistic. Verse 25 in Matthew 6, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And we could expand that, where you're going to live, what kind of car you're going to drive, and all that kind of thing. What holiday you're going to take in our culture. So is not life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Because back in that culture, that's what they had. They didn't go on big holidays like we do today. At least the majority didn't. So does this verse mean that we shouldn't care at all what we wear or about investments or monetary matters? No. The point is that we not to be anxious about those things. It literally means take no worry. Now the word worry means to strangle. So if you're worried about what you're wearing, eating or drinking, or living, driving, whatever, traveling, about what you have or don't have materially, you'll be tied in knots and strangled. And I came across this illustration. So apparently it takes 60 trillion droplets of fog to cover seven city blocks. So that's enough to cover an airport, right? So 60 trillion droplets of fog. That's enough to close an airport and tie up cities, you know, if you can't see through it, yeah? How much volume of water would you get if you condensed all those 60 trillion droplets of fog? A half a cup of water. That's it, just half a cup of water. Apparently, if this thing is true, I didn't check the facts myself with this one, but it's a good illustration. So that's a good picture of what worry is all about. You begin with something little, only half a glass of water, but you start thinking about it and wrestling with it, wondering, how is this going to work out? How am I going to do that? And before long, you can't see straight and your airport is shut down. You're not hearing from the Lord and you're not soaring with the Lord as you once did because you're all fogged in. Jesus says, don't take any anxious thought whatsoever. Don't let worry strangle you. Don't end up in a fog. Okay, verse 26 in Matthew 6. 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And obviously, yes, we are. So 1 Peter 5 says we are to cast all our anxieties upon God. How? Well, you probably know this verse. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So just think about that. If we're worrying about stuff, then that's an absence of God's peace, the peace of God in us. Is it worth it? I don't think so. God wants us to be a carefree people. God has promised to provide all of our needs. We need to trust him to do that. So his peace will guard us from fear, anxiety and stress, from worry. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift from God. and We can't manufacture this ourselves. On to verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Can you make yourself taller by worrying? I don't think so. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. One day at a time. So if we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will fall into place. Can you all testify that God has provided you for your needs up to this point? Yeah? Okay. So we are living proof that God has provided for us. So why do we worry? Why do we spend nights worrying? The Lord has been faithful even when we've been foolish. And that's why Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow. Today has enough challenges of its own. Just deal with today and above all, seek first the kingdom of God. So that was my little side into giving with your heart, as it says in Exodus there. Giving from the heart and the results of that, you'll gain his peace and your hearts and minds will be guarded. So back into Exodus chapter 25, we're in verse 8 now. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So what's God's desire? to dwell amongst us, to be with us. So the sanctuary the children of Israel were to construct was a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling place. Now, I want to do a little comparison between the tabernacle and Jesus, the Word made flesh, or who literally tabernacled among us. John 1.14 So, the tabernacle was a temporary appointment. It served a specific purpose for a specific time until the temple was erected in Jerusalem. Just as Jesus dwelt among us temporarily for 33 years until he ascended into heaven. The next parallel is, the tabernacle was erected in the wilderness. So too, Jesus dwelt in the wilderness. For, although foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere, or had nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 
The tabernacle was humble in outward appearance. Covered in animal skins, it resembled the Bedouin tents of the day. So common was Jesus in his appearance that Judas had to identify him with a kiss. Matthew 26.48 The next comparison. Although it was humble outwardly, the interior of the tabernacle was unbelievably beautiful. For it was not only filled with gold, silver and fine tapestries, but infinitely more important, it was filled with the Shekinah glory of God. Although Jesus resembled other men of his day in outward appearance, there was such a beauty within him that the people were drawn to him like moss were drawn to a flame. Mark 12.37 The tabernacle was not only God's dwelling place, verse 8, but his meeting place. We'll come to that in verse 22. Just as Jesus not only dwells among us, but he is the only way we have oneness or fellowship and communion with the Father. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. So the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. So as we go through, this is really easy to see Jesus in what we're going to see. So in verse 9 it says, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Got a picture. So here's the tabernacle. It's about 5 metres by 15 metres, or 15 feet by 45 feet. The square here is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant goes. Outside of that, you've got the altar of incense, you've got a curtain that goes across, or a wall with a curtain. You've got the table of the bread, and then you've got the lampstand, and out here you've got the laver and the altar. And then outside all that, you've got this big courtyard made of panels and curtains. So that's the tabernacle. That's what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks. And what we're looking at today is just this piece of furniture in here. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's in the most holy place. So it says, make sure you build exactly to the pattern. God said to Moses, why? Because in Hebrews 8.5, it tells us that the tabernacle is a shadow or picture of that which is in heaven presently. So this is a model, a physical model on earth of what exists in heaven, according to Hebrews 8 verse 5. And they shall make an ark. So what does the ark look like? So it's a box. It's made of wood, but it's covered in gold. The top, the mercy seat, is like a lid. And that is solid gold. And it's got the cherubim or angels on the top. It's got a rim around the top. And it's got the the two rods that you hold it with to carry it. It's it's designed to be portable. And that's what lives in the Holy of Holies. So why did God start with the ark? Why not start with building the actual tent first and then start filling it in? Why did he start with the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's all about meeting with God. What's God's desire for us is to us to meet with Him. So the most important part of this tabernacle is this Ark of the Covenant because it represents where we meet God. And I'm going to explain why it's so important. We don't start from the outside and work way in. That's the old covenant. But for us, we just go straight there. It's all based on relationship and it's all about grace. So we'll find out. I'll talk more about that later. So verse 10, it says it's made of acacia wood. And it speaks of humanity. So the wood speaks of humanity. Acacia trees grow in the desert regions, in dry ground, 
And just as Isaiah declared that Jesus would be a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53 verse 2, acacia wood has a unique property that Bedouins use even today. That is, when pierced, it pours forth a gum resin that contains healing properties for cuts, sores, and abrasions. So I haven't been able to test that myself, but I wouldn't mind trying. In the same way, Jesus was pierced with the phylogelum, the whip, and by his stripes we're healed spiritually, emotionally, and eventually we'll get a new body, physically. And sometimes he heals us before that too, which is awesome. Two and a half cubits should be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So it's basically in feet. It's a box, four feet by two feet by two feet. So it's four feet long, two feet high, two feet wide. And you should overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you should overlay it. So although Jesus became a man, he was also God. So to portray Jesus correctly, the acacia wood of humanity was covered with the gold of deity. So the gold represents deity. Just as an aside, you got the gold, silver, and bronze used in the tabernacle. The gold is deity. Silver represents redemption because 30 pieces of silver for redemption. And bronze speaks of judgment. That's why the altar is made of bronze. Now, also, another interesting fact, acacia wood is the only thorn-bearing tree which grows in the desert. So Jesus would indeed be crowned with a crown of thorns, but he'll also be crowned with a crown of gold later. Or he would be now. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So that's how they carried it. And if you read later on in the scriptures, they disobeyed that. Or David said, let's put on a cart and... Quite a few people died. So you've got to take this thing seriously. This represents the presence of God. God is powerful. God is a consuming fire. So verse 16, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. That's the Ten Commandments. The two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Exodus thirty-one eighteen. So, Come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need, God says to us in Hebrews 4.16. But I can't, we say, I haven't prayed in days, I haven't been to church in weeks, I haven't witnessed in months, I haven't kept the commandments. Well, where were the commandments kept? Inside the ark, okay. Who kept the commandments? Jesus kept the commandments, very good. He says, I always do those things that please the Father, John 8.29. So Jesus kept the commandments perfectly and as believers we are in him positionally. We are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Therefore the Father looks at us and doesn't see our sin. He looks at us and sees his Son. Romans 3.21-26 We'll come back to that scripture. Romans. So if you have a container which you can't see through and you put something else in it, well, you know it's in there, but you can't see it. So when the Father looks at us, we're in Christ, he sees Jesus. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. 
That's four feet by two feet. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub or angel at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. So it's all one piece of gold. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. So, most Christians try to meet God at the ark by keeping the commandments, by going to this meeting, by doing these things, by not sinning, by living purely. But God says he'll meet us not at the ark, but at instead the mercy seat. Okay, We don't meet him at the ark itself where the law is kept. We meet him at the mercy seat because the law brings death. We can't keep the law. We've broken the law, and therefore the penalty of breaking the law is death. So how do we walk with the Lord practically? Well, it's not by anything we do. It's not by how long our devotions are or how many chapters of the Bible we've read or how many prayers we offer, but it's just grace. It's just the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. And this is the mercy seat. This is what it's all about. This is where so many people miss it. Although most people understand they're saved by grace, a lot of people think they're sanctified by works. So we think we grow in our Christian walk by being good. But that's not true either. We can't save ourselves and we can't sanctify ourselves. True relationship with God is not about our witnessing, ministry or devotional life. It's all about what he did in and through Christ. So on that first Easter Sunday morning, if you looked in the empty tomb, you'd seen two angels and you would have seen a blood-stained slab of stone where Jesus had lain, where all the blood had kind of seeped through the cloth. That's John chapter 20, verse 12. Now, Leviticus 16, 14 tells us that the mercy seat will be sprinkled with blood. So the mercy seat is a perfect picture of the only way we can have fellowship with God. And that is, it's through the finished work of the Son when he died on the cross as a payment for our sins. So the mercy seat, the Hebrew word is kaporoth. I think it's how you say it. Uh, was a solid slab of pure gold. Again, quite a lot of gold would have gone into this. And it was on top of the ark. And being on top, it signified the covering or removal of sins by means of an expiratory, E-X-P-I-A-T-O-R-Y, or atoning sacrifice. Okay, So what does atonement mean? Well, it just means, if you break the word down, at one meant, okay? So at one meant. It's a state of being reconciled. And the dictionary general definition is the action of making amends for a wrong or injury. So we're at one meant, where atonement means at one meant. God has reconciled us. The mercy seat is also the place, not just of atonement, but also of propitiation. So propitiation, carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically toward God. So it's slightly different to atonement. It covers the meaning of atonement, but it also covers the appeasement of God's wrath. So let me give you a little example here, if I can think of one. 
let's say you trusted me, okay? And I went into your house and I stole your key card and your pin and I took all your money out of the bank and then I left town. And in the meantime, you can't pay your bills, your car gets repossessed and and you're thinking, that guy was awful. And then I say, oh, I'm really sorry, here's your money back. But you're still angry. You're still holding a grudge against me. You can't trust me anymore. Well, that's the wrath, okay? That's God's wrath, the anger. And that's the way God is, and that's the way we are. We're made in the image of God. And so when we do something, God doesn't say, well, yeah, the penalty for that is this, but it doesn't really affect me emotionally. God is affected emotionally, okay, when we sin. So we have wrath stored up against us if we are not Christians, if we haven't received this covering of the mercy seat. So propitiation is similar to atonement, but it adds the concept of the appeasement of God's wrath. So how could I let you appease your wrath? Well, maybe I could say, look, I'm really sorry. I know you're really angry with me. Maybe just get a newspaper and just whack me with it so you're not angry with me anymore, something like that. And that's basically what God did with Jesus. You vent your anger. And that's what God did with Jesus. That's what the mercy seat represents. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So the blood of the innocent victim on the mercy seat met the holy demands of God's law. So the Old Testament throne of grace was the place where God exhibited his presence and met man in his grace. Now we see this in the New Testament too. In the New Testament, the Greek word hilasteron is translated propitiation in Romans 3.25. We'll read that later. And it's identical to the word translated mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5. So propitiation and mercy seat in the New Testament are the same thing. So our sins were removed by means of the atoning at one meant, a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Christ is our mercy seat. It's a picture of Jesus. He is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. He is a sacrifice that appeased God's wrath. I know this is fairly simple, but it's important to understand what the mercy seat is. So when you read the scriptures, you'll hopefully understand why it was such a special thing and why God put this first. So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross made propitiation for us. He is our propitiation. He is the sacrifice that takes away our sin and the wrath of God has been appeased. We are now reconciled to God. So in summary, Jesus is the sacrifice that satisfied the offended justice of God. The righteous demands of God were met and satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross, which is all pictured by the mercy seat. Above the law, covering us or protecting us from that condemnation and the blood representing the propitiation. Moving on to verse 21b. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it's at the mercy seat that God meets with us. And that's how we connect with the Father. It's through Jesus. Now, little illustration. The Philistines captured the ark at one time, and so the Philistines took the ark back to their towns and put it in front of their temple of their god, Dagon. 
and the next morning found Dagon face down before the ark. Then they put Dagon back up, right? And the next day, the following day, he was down again, but this time with his head and his hands severed. You can read that in First Samuel chapter 5. So, while it would seem obvious that they needed a more powerful God to protect them, they instead decided to send the ark back to Israel. And the Israelites were really excited. You know, they smashed the cart, they sacrificed the bullocks or the cows. But some of them looked inside and they died. Why did they die when they looked inside? What's inside? It's the law, yeah. Okay, I will meet you at the mercy seat, God says. If this is how God meets with us, then this is how we should meet with others. This is an application for us. God has mercy towards us, so we should have mercy towards other people. One of the Proverbs says, Love covers a multitude of sins. But we can make a deadly mistake when we set aside mercy to try and get to the bottom of an issue, to lay down the law on someone. You did this, and therefore you must pay. And if we do that with people, we're going to destroy our relationships if we try and lay down the law on people, we can destroy our relationships, destroy our families, destroy our friendships, and we can destroy our ministries. And the letter of the law kills, Paul would write, but the Spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3.6. So once we set aside mercy, even temporarily, when someone offends us and we need to get to the bottom of something, to find out, try and find out who's right and wrong, the end will always be death. Friendships will die, families will divide, ministry will shut down. No good comes from removing the mercy seat and exposing the law. So who do we need to be merciful to? To the person you've been angry with? It's a good start. Who should we be gracious towards? Well, the person you feel has wronged you. Because in Matthew 5, 7 it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And again, Proverbs says that love covers a multitude of sins. So I'm not saying that we don't have consequences and don't set boundaries in our lives, but our lives should be marked by mercy. Like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. What did he say to her? Your faith has saved you. Go and sin no more. And he also said, where are your accusers? She said, nowhere, Lord. So that's an example of Jesus showing mercy. There was a consequence or a boundary that Jesus said. He didn't say, Oh, go and sin more because I have lots and lots of mercy. He said, your faith has saved you. Go and sin no more. So he's basically saying, I'm not going to condemn you, but these are my standards. So whenever we feel far from God, a practical way we can be brought back into his presence or to experience his presence is by building our own mercy seat. And that is, I'm talking figuratively here now, Find someone to who you can show mercy. So we can experience God by praising him. Psalm 22 declares that he inhabits the praises of his people. But the second way is by showing mercy to people, for it's at the mercy seat that God chooses to dwell. God loves us being merciful. I just want to finish up by looking at the Ark of the Covenant as a prophetic type. Now I've got this little quote from the Evidence Bible. And it says this, it's by David R. Regan. 
Not only is the Bible resplendent with prophetic verses, it is also full of prophetic types. Prophecy in type is symbolic prophecy. Think of it as prophecy that has come alive, embodied in the life of a person, ceremony, or thing. Everything about the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of the Messiah. It was made of wood, indicating the Messiah would be a human. It was overlaid with gold, signifying the Messiah would be divine. The Ark contained three objects, the tablets of stone, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. It's Hebrews 9.4. The tablets signified that the Messiah would have the law of God in his heart. The manna meant that Messiah would be the bread of life. The rod with blossoms was a prophecy that the Messiah would arise from the dead. So the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. Once a year the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat to atone, to make atonement, for the sins of Israel. The mercy seat pointed to the fact that through the work of the Messiah, the mercy of God would cover the law. The blood foreshadowed the fact that the Messiah would have to shed his own blood to atone for our sins. So, did Jesus fulfill all that prophecy? Let's just look at a few verses. The wood? He was God in the flesh. So, was he God in the flesh? So this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be of a child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then you got John ten thirty to 33. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And the context is he's saying, I am God. And then you can see that if you read the rest of those verses. He had the law in his heart. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Did Jesus claim to be the bread of life? Yes. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And we've talked before about the manna being a picture of Jesus, the bread of life. Did he shed his blood on the cross? Well, absolutely. So I just want to finish going through these verses in Romans. This is a summing up of everything about the mercy seat. So see where it says in verse 25, propitiation? That's the same word in Hebrews 9.5 for mercy seat. Okay. So when you read Romans chapter 3, it's making reference to the mercy seat, propitiation. So it says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So this, the ark is one of the promises that showed us this. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. That's propitiation. Also the atonement for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Right in his sight is justified. So that's what it means there. Justified never sinned. 
So that's what the mercy seat is all about. So you can meditate on Romans three twenty one to twenty six and think about propitiation, the mercy seat. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture. I thank you for this prophecy. I thank you for this type that points us straight to you, straight to the work on the cross where you paid the penalty for our sins and you also took God's anger and God's wrath upon yourself. And now we are in you. Lord, we've received your mercy. We are a new creation. And Lord, through you, Lord, we're pure, we're holy, positionally. And practically, you're transforming us day by day. Lord, help us to be thankful for all we've learnt today and help us to live a pure life representing you. In Jesus' name, amen.